And we're recording. Hello, everybody. Hello, Martin. How you doing? How you doing? Oh, hey, what's up? Sorry, you said how you doing, and then you say how you doing. What? How you doing? How you doing? Well, today I'm just frustrated. Uh, we were talking before we started. Uh, so I've got the last two episodes of our podcast all time stamped and ready for me to make thumbnails to post to YouTube. But I want to make sure that my WWE uh, letter is pretty good and well sourced. So I've been spending literally all day today on that. Mm hmm. Hell yeah. So I, yeah, I've just been like, oh man, damn, man, I gotta make this as good as it can be, you know, get my sourcing right, make it entertaining, call the Saudi Arabians pigs a lot of times. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe you should direct your uh, vitriol a little bit more specifically to uh, the government rather than just Saudi Arabs. Oh, that's what I mean, yeah, the Saudi government, yeah. Okay. Because you said Saudi Arabians, it's like all of them. <laughs> no, man, no, you know it's you know it's the government. Yeah, yeah. Another thing I was thinking about too, though, is um, you know when we talk about the crimes of Saudi Arabia when it comes to abroad, I think we cannot forget the crimes of more civilized nations also when it comes to what they do outside of their borders as well. So, damn. That's another thing I mentioned. More civilized nations. Damn, that sounds. I know well, yeah. what you, I know what you mean, but your uh, vernacular, <laughs> your choice of words, your rhetoric sounds. It's true. Culturally, I mean, we have a more civilized country internally than Saudi Arabia. I because the government's a POS. I don't think it's a matter of like who is more civil and who's not. I think it's just a matter of, like, a regime that's fundamentalist. And I'm sure that we have plenty of Christian extremists in our own country who would be ever so horny to have a similar style of government. Oh, hell yeah. Government. Yeah, I made the comparison. Uh, well, first of all, I made the comparison that I said Saudi Arabia, so Saudi Arabia, the government of Saudi Arabia... Their version of Islam is like the Westboro Baptist Church's version of Christianity. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. But I will, but I don't know. I'll stand by the civilization comment because I think our government is more civilized um, than the Saudi Arabian government. I don't. At least when it comes to domestically. I just feel don't keep, like yeah. the civilization bit is a little like, I don't know. It doesn't feel as appropriate. It feels like civilization is more broad than just a government. I'm saying the actions of the government are civilized when it comes to policing and hurting their civilians. Right. I just, I don't want to get like too hooked on the rhetoric. It's more like, I don't know. I feel like someone could be like, oh, look at these white people. They think, you know, their government, which bombs Muslims is more civilized, quote unquote. I think, I think like that my issue with the whole civilized rhetoric is basically that it feels very like colonial almost you know what i mean yeah that's why i made the distinction though when it comes to internally well internally that could be pretty that, that's that could be pretty vague 
That can be pretty broad too. Like internally in reference to what? You know? Well, reference to freedom of speech, you know, something we have, freedom of expression over here in this country. They don't have it over there. Yeah. So very, it's totalitarian. Absolutely. Yeah. It's fucking backwards. <laughs> they tend, the Saudi state tends to have a very uh, antediluvian view of a lot of things. Um, Whatever diluvian is. Antediluvian? Sounds uh, like a fellation. <laughs> so I don't know. I invented a new race, fellations. Fellation. <laughs> well, hold on, I, hold on. Paul's. You mean like Paul? It sounds like a book of a Bible, actually. <laughs> letter to oh, letter shit. to the fellations. Well, here. So, oh my God, hold on. So I put <laughs> in fellation the way I spelled it phonetically right now into Google. And the only thing I got was fellatio. <laughs> okay. Hold on. I'm going to spell it a different way. Nope, I didn't get anything. Like, if the Saudi government were just giving people head all the time, instead of, you know, taking their heads, I think that would be, you know, whatever. That's fine. You know, King's, King Salman and uh, his son, the crown prince, you know, doing their civil duty, giving blowjobs to the good people, the good, hardworking people of Saudi Arabia, that kind of thing. Hell yeah, government should serve the people. But Hell yeah. uh, I, uh, on this Google, though, it, it directed me to a site, Urban Dictionary, and you've got Philater, which you can imagine what that is. Philater. You got, <laughs> you got Philatic, if I'm even saying that right. Philatic or Philatic, a really dumb person. Um... A really dumb person? What? How does that, that make sense? Hold on, let me show you. I'll post this in the chat for you. We're but learning. This is Urban Dictionary. We're learning words today, folks. You got philatic or philotic. A really dumb person. If you can avoid anybody with this name, do so. They think they are the funniest people ever. Well, guess what? They aren't. This looks like it's so Latin sounding. It's like, it sounds like a position in a Roman office, the fallator or something. The fallator. It's just like the Roman official who gets elected and he just gives blowjobs to the plebs. Philatic, a really dumb person, if you could avoid anyone with this name, do so. They think they are the funniest people ever. Well, guess what? They aren't. Just like me. Philatic. I'm so funny. Ha ha ha. I can make jokes that don't make any sense. Somebody's making this person up. This is made up. People made this shit up. Fellationation. <laughs> the fraternal order of men who don't always get head, but when they do, they like it. Ryan is the, foundate, the founder of the Fellation Nation and is working to make the world suck one. Oh my god. This is so oh stupid. This is so I'm glad we opened up with something so stupid. <laughs> It's going to really lighten up the mood to when we talk about our main subject today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We're starting off good with uh, talking about the Saudi state and uh, sucking dick, apparently. Oh, yuck, dude. Come on. What? Are you saying there's something inherently gross or disgusting oh. about sucking a big hog? Ah, oh, well, I mean, you know, to each to each person, their own. There you go. <laughs> there we go. See, someone's, you know someone's got to do it, it. 
to go back though to our Saudi Arabian discussion, if people want to do that, the government should have no business if it's two consenting adults. Who gives a crap, man? No shit. Why don't you chill the fuck out, Saudi Arabia? Chill the fuck out. Yeah, and uh, one of the main sources I used for that piece of writing uh, today was Human Rights Watch. Oh. Or, so hrw.org. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had a little section about Saudi Arabia in 2021. Um, and it seems that the country is trying to be a lot more inclusive like for example uh they recently removed language in a law that would uh allow a woman to not have to go to a male relative if like she has a dispute so it seems i they need let's just say this they need to get their shit together man saudi arabia does because they got dude think about this think about this they got Mecca and they got Medina. Like, those are cities that, even if you're not Muslim, those are cities that I think every human being should at least respect because it's the, it's the, it's the place where one of the world's top five religions was founded, man. I want to actually, I want to visit Mecca even though I'm not a Muslim. I just want to make the Hajj. But I got a feeling that Saudi Arabia won't let me once I release... That inflammatory piece of writing. Martin Al-Hajj. Well, that'd be cool, man. I'd be respectful toward Islam, even though I'm not a Muslim. I would follow Islamic whatever code or whatever. I wonder how they even, you know, actually vet people. I I wonder what that actually looks like. Because mm. I remember... I, I actually remember listening to the uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X... And in that, oh, yeah. and in that chapter, he talks about you know his experience going on the Hajj, and yep. I'm I'm sure he probably had a different experience than most because he was like probably maybe among the first Muslims from the United States to actually go to Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure. Um, like he was interviewed by a uh, I think he was a Qadi. I'm not sure, but uh, basically like a government religious official. Um, basically explaining and basically to vet if he was like, you know, Muslim or not, if he knew basic Islamic doctrines and so on and so forth. And he, they eventually let him in. Um, but he also received like Royal treatment too, from the Saudi government because of his, uh, reputation, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, they kind of gave him a celebrity treatment, like a government official actually, who was like an advisor or counselor to uh, the king of Saudi Arabia at the time, uh, actually gave him his hotel suite and he opted for like a smaller one, this official, right? And this actually Mm -hmm. really impacted him because uh, the dude that gave him this really super luxurious suite was actually a white looking Saudi Arab dude, right? Yeah. And... You know, that was like a super impactful moment, and that was kind of one of the things during the Hajj that kind of got him reconsidering some of his earlier positions about, you know, race and shit like that. Oh, yeah. Um, it was really interesting. Really, really liked listening to that. But, yeah, I don't know if, obviously, there is... I'm sure there's a vetting process of some kind. I just don't know 
what that vetting process looks like. Yeah, and I'm sure they had to, hopefully they did vet him because he was in that cult, Nation of Islam. Yeah, right. Uh, and again, like, Nation of Islam is about as Islam as I'm Islam. You know what I'm saying? Like, what the F? It appropriates the language, mm. um, but n- really none of the actual doctrine, theology, or teachings. Yeah. Um, it's a... Technically, Nation of Islam is actually... Some people classify it as a UFO cult. Oh, interesting. Let's see. Or a UFO religion. Uh, oh, there's a Wikipedia page. Well, and Wikipedia determines what's true and what's not, right? Well, here, let me link if this. If it's to well here. sourced, I mean. Well, they got like a small section here. You can scroll down. There's a Ooh, section. UFO religions. Okay. So yeah. we're at UFO religions, y'all, if you want to follow along. UFO religion. Yeah, you just scroll down. Well, basically, technically it's, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's not technically a UFO religion, but it's a religion, a non-UFO religion that talks about UFOs or brings it up in their oh. teachings. Well, <laughs> I really like, are, yeah, I really like how right above Nation of Islam, there's <laughs> Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> oh, oh, wait a minute. Oh. Oh, oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, you you got to go in more detail. That's why I kind of didn't ask you too many questions. <laughs> oh, that's right. So, uh, explain to the people. All right. So, dear, <laughs> dear readers, or dear listeners, you're not readers. We don't fucking publish anything. Uh, dear listeners, yes. slash readers, um, if you follow Twitter, you're technically a reader. Um, so, as you may or may not know, um, I have a very loose, tenuous connection with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormon Church. Uh, this connection was established years ago by myself when I made the very uh, not brightest decision to order a free copy of the Book of Mormon from the LDS Church's website. We'll never um, do that, y'all. <laughs> yeah, um, and you're going to find out why. So, you know... I wait for a little bit, you know, like maybe a week or week or two, give or take, uh, for my book to arrive. And I'm like, I'm assuming, of course, like any normal person would, that this book would arrive in the mail. You know, you can order books in the mail. That's kind of like how Amazon sells books and so on and so forth. Um, I get a text <laughs> on my phone. Uh, I got this text because I they requested my phone number and email address. So I gave that to them <laughs> uh, for some fucking reason without really thinking much about it. Um, so, yeah, I got... <laughs> I received a text very randomly. Uh, and it was, they were like, Hello, is this cornbread? These, you know, these are the missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How are you? We got your... <laughs> copy of the book of mormon you requested what would be a good time for us to deliver it and then i realized then there the big big oops i've made um and ever since then i've had semi-regular conversations and contacts with missionaries from the lds church um it usually kind of these encounters usually happen over they start over text right so I usually will have exhausted the patience or interest of a couple of missionaries after maybe a few 
weeks of back and forth meetings, usually over Zoom or in person or whatever. Uh, and I use this op as a good opportunity to kind of introduce these missionaries to different ways of thinking about certain topics, um, to Ooh. ask some challenging questions, um, things like that. A little bit is what you might call street epistemology, which I'm not an expert on. Um, I wait, 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 did you say street epistemology? Right. So street epistemology what? is technically a more applied version of the Socratic method. Um, and it was coined and kind of developed by this guy. Let me pull up some basic information here. I think his name is Anthony uh, something, something. Sounds like a rap song or something. Street epistemology coming at urology. You think. So street epistemology, I'm looking at a website right now, started, as a, started life as a method to discuss religious belief in the 2013 book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. The book motivated many people to apply the techniques in their conversations, with some recording the interactions and making these recordings available online for others to study and critique. Uh, but it's more or less basically a useful term. I don't really like the idea of creating atheists. That's not oh, what, yeah. I'm, what I'm about. I kind of think that's fucking cringy. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, But I do find it to be a useful tool to basically finding out why someone believes the ideas that they do. So not only is this really a good method for you to practice when you're trying to learn more about why someone believes the way they do, the way they do mm. um, it's also very useful for getting the person you're asking to actually inspect their beliefs uh, a bit more critically. So... Well, yeah, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. So one of like the main guys that helped popular popularize street epistemology is a fellow named Anthony Magnabosco, right? Uh, and he has he was like one who really got this popularized by recording interactions between himself and like Christian evangelists and there's actually quite a few where he interacts with mormon missionaries you know just kind of out on the street and stuff so hence the name street epistemology so i apply some of this when i'm you know talking with missionaries i didn't really do it over the weekend when i first talked to these guys because it's kind of like a more introductory kind of thing and I prefer to kind of apply street epistemology when I have like a rapport established. So they don't really just think I'm some guy trying to make them atheists or make them look stupid or anything like that. So over the weekend, uh, I get, I basically met a couple of fellows, young guys. These dudes were pretty fucking big. <laughs> These are probably like the most buff missionaries I fucking ever met from any religion whatsoever. Like, give a height and a weight. Uh, I actually think there one guy was probably my height, and the other one was probably like an inch or two taller than me. Right. So for reference, oh, I'm six foot one. Oh, okay. I'm six foot one, right? So one of these guys is either that or like maybe six foot two. 
who knows, like an inch. Uh. And the other guy is definitely got like two or three inches on me. <laughs> and these dudes are like fresh out of high school. Or one, no, well, actually one of them said he had took like a semester or two at BYU Idaho. And then he went on his mission. On his mission, and then the other guy was fresh out of high school. But both of these guys were former football players from different schools, I think. Um, and they were fucking buff. <laughs> hmm. I'm usually kind of used to talking to like skinny ass kids. You know what I mean? Oh uh, yeah. And granted, age wise, they were kids. These guys actually. To their credit, were very, very good speakers. I was very impressed by their ability to, you know, give me their spiel, as it were. Um, they will be great multi-level marketers, I think, in the oh, future. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to get into the the weird relationship between Mormons and MLMs, which is actually a thing. Uh, fun fact: Mormons are overrepresented in multi-level marketing schemes and companies uh oh. that might be a future episode we'll cover but um wait so they're overrepresented in that oh think? yeah oh yeah they dominate that field dude not only are they yeah. like in mul- a lot of multi-level marketing companies they start a lot of multi-level marketing companies <laughs> oh so that's a thing yeah give that you can go look that up, actually, if, if you uh, get curious. I believe you. I just, uh, wow. Yeah. And when you think about it, though, it makes sense. Especially if you have served a mission where you're trying to basically sell a fucking religion to somebody. Um, a yeah. Re- a religion with some questionable doctrine and even more questionable history. Well, especially like Scientologists, too. Yeah. Yeah. But... Because Mormonism, you know, is much more, I would say, successful in terms of size and wealth than Scientology. That, I it's think, just because they have the more pretty chicks, bro. I mean, there could be that, too. <laughs> the, the Mormon eugenics program. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. So, it was basically nothing... Our conversation was basically nothing I haven't heard before. Um, there's usually, when you're kind of first talking to missionaries, right, you are typically getting introduced, and I'm usually pretty proactive about that. I usually ask, you know, hey, where are you from? You know, you're thinking about going to college, you know, where do you want, where do you want to do, what do you, where do you want to go after you're done with your mission and stuff like that? And, you know, and this is a very good way to build rapport and trust and all that. And you're getting to know the person a little bit better, right? Because at the end of the day, missionaries, as annoying as they are for some people, are just people. Um, So, Yeah. yeah. Um, so we started out with a little bit of that, and then they kind of, they oh, they typically will open up with, you know, the spiel about, um, we want you, we want to let you know that we come with this message, that, you know, there is a God, that he loves the world, and he has a plan for all of us, and our church, you know, um, kind of falls into that plan. Um, you know, our church teaches that, you know, there's a God, a Heavenly Father, right? They like to use the term Heavenly Father a lot in Mormonism. Um, because they they tend to view God in more literal terms as a Heavenly Ooh. Father, right? So do, do Mormons believe in, like, literal? Like, there's a flesh and blood? Heavenly uh, Father? They believe God had a body. 
Oh. And that we are all his spiritual children. So in Mormonism, you are basically related to everyone else on a, like, metaphysically. Not metaphorically, metaphysically. Like, spiritually. <laughs> like, your soul is literally the, the brother or sister of another soul that comes directly from God. In this state of existence called the pre-mortal existence. Oh, shit. So you're actually also related tangentially to Jesus Christ as well as uh, Lucifer. Um, Mormonism teaches that, among other things, <laughs> um, Jesus and Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, are actually brothers. <laughs> brothers from the same father, who is God, who is also... I don't know who their mom was. <laughs> there is a Heavenly Mother, actually, in Mormonism, but they don't really talk about Heavenly Mother very much. And I asked him actually about this with a different pair of missionaries a long time ago. And I'm like, okay, I was very curious about this Heavenly Mother stuff because you mentioned her. And they and uh, they both look at each other, you know, and they actually weren't totally sure about mm. uh, why that was the case, that they don't talk about Heavenly Mother. And then they kind of fell back on this explanation that, well, like, we're not totally sure why, but we think it's mostly because our church teaches that it's to be respectful of heavenly mother right you know you don't we don't talk about her as much so that way people don't have as much opportunity to disrespect heavenly mother um which makes no sense to me <laughs> um but okay that's the answer they gave me so yeah and mormonism how the fuck does this become about Mormonism again? God damn it. <laughs> Dude, we're talking about your experiences with uh, Saturday. Yeah, I know. But then I also have to, like, explain Mormon doctrine for any of this to make sense. And the more the more I uh, explain things, the more questions that are, you know, conjured in your heads. And it's a lot of – I tend to information bomb. And there's really no uh. other way I can explain this. But – Heavenly Father and Mormonism is treated as a literal father, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. not, not just to Jesus and not just to Satan, but to you, <laughs> to me, to Martin. Um, not just to Jesus or Satan. To your mom, to my mom, and, you know, your mom's mom, right? You're all related. So there's a little spiritual incest going on there. Oh. Uh, yeah, bet you didn't know that. I didn't like that, man. Ha ha ha. So, yeah, they usually open up with that spiel that there's a loving God and he has a plan for us all. And we can learn more about this plan through the church and through the gospel, right? And the gospel includes the Bible and the Book of Mormon because they believe the Book of Mormon is... As the subtitle of the book says, another testament of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, Bible 2.0, essentially. Bible DLC, you know, for all you hardcore gamers out there to kind of explain this a little bit more in your terms. So imagine the Bible being Diablo 2, right? Well, oh, yeah. the Book of Mormon is basically Lord the Lord of Destruction expansion, which is kind of necessary for the full experience of Diablo 2. <laughs> so, that's kind of the role that the Book of Mormon plays in the LDS church. So, they give me that spiel and, you know, talk a little bit more. Um, and I ask some probing questions. 
you know, because during the spiel, they tell me that, and I already knew this, of course, that um, Joseph Smith actually translated the Bible. There's actually a Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, believe it or not. Um, now, a guy from upstate New York who has no knowledge of <laughs> Konye Greek or Hebrew um, or Aramaic or anything else. Um, now, how a guy like that could translate the Bible seems kind of fucking arrogant, right? Um, but Boy, was, what a con man. Jesus Christ. Literally in the same breath as they tell me, you know, during what was called the age of apostasy, right? Which occur, which is kind of like a Mormon view of history. Okay, so the Mormon, so the age of apostasy in Mormonism essentially is that uh, during the days of the early church, right? You know, Jesus has done his thing and the apostles are kind of doing their thing, you know, getting these churches started in parts of Asia, parts of Greece, parts of Africa, you know, all over the place. So over time, the apostles eventually die, right? Oh no. Um, and there's a big problem. So in Mormonism, there's this concept called priesthood, right? And oh it's, yeah. Yeah. So priesthood is kind of a very, mm, I don't know how to, to, I don't know what would be a good metaphor to describe priesthood, but it's essentially a state of authority as well as basically being mag a magical power, if that makes sense. So when someone has what is called priesthood, they have certain powers and authority to pass on priesthood, right? So you can pass on this priesthood to other people and people with priesthood basically continue the true teachings of the true church. You Wait, know? so it's like an STD? Yeah, it's kind of like an STD, but something okay. spirit, like a spiritual STD. <laughs> okay. um, but eventually, the guys that have the spiritual STD all fucking died, and those were the apostles. Oh. So Jesus had priesthood, John the Bast Baptist had priesthood, a lot of the early prophets also had priesthood. You know, that's, that's basically how priests were. You could pass it on. Just like an STD. So, but like I said earlier, in the early church, oh no, all the apostles suddenly die. Or one way, or, not suddenly, but eventually they pass away or are martyred or whatever. So there's no one left to pass on the priesthood. Now, you might ask yourself, okay, why didn't the apostles pass on the priesthood to others? Good fucking question, actually. Well, um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the priesthood is eventually lost over time. And this is kind of the period in early Christianity where you start to see a bunch of competing doctrines. There's no orthodox Christianity to point to. Like, none of the Christianities present at this time would resemble any form of Christianity you might be familiar with today. It was that fucking wild. Um, but over time, um, eventually, you know, the early church kind of settles on some form of orthodoxy, and then you start to see these heresies pop up here and there, like the Arian heresy, um, and so on and so forth. And then eventually you get the Roman Catholic Church, um, and eventually that splits 
uh, and later on you get, you know, the Protestant Reformation. It's an era of just like, it's like a thousand years or so of complete fucking chaos, right? With all these different, like, versions of Christianity and churches popping up here and there. And it's just a whole fucking mess for like, uh, how, yeah. almost a thousand years, like I said. Um, now, why God would just kind of let that go for as long as he did is kind of not answered very well. So they just kind yeah. of, they just usually say, it's part of the plan. It's just part of the part plan. Part of the plan. <laughs> yeah, it's Heavenly Father's plan, right? Because God, you know, <sighs> Heavenly Father wants us to have free will. He wants us to come to him, but, you know, he also treasures our free will. He gives us choices. And he usually lets us make bad choices, according to the LDS Church. And God, being as wise and powerful as he is, uses our bad choices to make good outcomes out of those bad choices. Does that make sense? I barely, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, it's a way of saying, you know, when God, when, a, when, when life give, gives God lemons, he makes lemonade. <laughs> it's kind of like that kind of thinking. Um you know, you trust in the vine, the, you trust in the big plan, okay? So during this whole time, you know, of just complete religious chaos and apostasy from the true faith, um, the, the priesthood is pretty absent until one day in the <laughs> 1800s, not even 200 years ago, technically, <laughs> um... In upstate New York, the first vision occurs. And who has the first vision, you might ask? Well, it's a young treasure hunter named Joseph Smith. Oh, yeah. um, they don't really tell you he's a treasure hunter, of course, or the fact that he used his tools that he used for his treasure hunting scams to uh, translate the Book of Mormon, <laughs> which is further down the road, but there's this thing called the first vision. And we talked about the first vision a little bit um, in our meeting on Saturday. And basically, you know, Joseph Smith sees a vision of two figures. You know, there's God the Father, and then there's God the Son, AKA Jesus, Big J, Josh, whatever you want to call him. And, Yay. you know, they basically, I forget what they tell him. I don't remember those details. Um, but they had it memorized, actually, which was pretty impressive, to their credit. Um, and eventually, the story goes, you know, Joseph Smith finds these golden tablets. And these golden tablets are a record of a civilization in North America that uh, came from ancient Israel, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and essentially... What the church used to teach was that Native Americans today are direct ancestors of these Hebrews. Um, they, have they have since changed that narrative pretty subtly and quietly to it being more like modern Native Americans are among the descendants of these ancient Hebrews who lived and f started a civilization in America, you know? Yeah, but they're among. Among. So they assume, or these kids assume that I don't know any of this, by the way. So they're giving me, they're, they're giving me the most kind of like, you know, basic 
quickest rundown because they got like a lot to tell me about so they kind of skip a lot of details of course so they did mention you know that there was this civilization you know and the book of mormon is a record of that civilization and uh among this record that joseph smith trans translated and i'm using translation in air quotes here you can't tell um it basically tells the story a bunch of stories actually about a hebrew civilization that eventually splits off into a couple camps right they come from jerusalem a uh, long long time ago probably around the time of the tower of babel in biblical history i'm not totally sure um but these guys they sail in these wooden barges uh, but they're more like submarines, right? And the wooden submarines, you know, they, tr they have like these stones that uh, basically light the way so they can, you know, see underwater and see in the dark. Like literally God uh, made these stones glow by touching them with his finger in corporeal form, no less, to a g in front of a dude named the brother of Jared. They don't know his name. So he's just called the brother of Jared in the Book of Mormon. Um, <laughs> why such a key figure uh, who's... <laughs> why they would let his name be forgotten to history in this ancient record is a little beyond me. But he's just called the fucking brother of Jared. <laughs> it certainly can't be because Joseph Smith just didn't fucking bother thinking of a name for the guy. <laughs> so with these glowing stones and with these uh, wooden submarines full of animals... Um, you can probably see semblance to a similar story, of course, <laughs> uh, from the Bible, uh, full of animals, which includes bees, which I thought was really funny. Um, they travel from ancient Jerusalem and land in North America, which I believe most Mormon scholars slash believers think is modern day Mexico, somewhere in the Yucatan. So this civilization, um, uh, you know, they have horses, they have chariots, they have like steel, I think, um, things that do not exist uh, in North America around this time. Uh, and no evidence of these things existing has ever been found by fucking anybody. Um, so the Book of Mormon follows stories from different prophets and figures from the civilization. And the civilization splits off into two camps, right? There's the Lamanites and then there's the Nephites. And the Nephites, in the original version of this story, uh, were white and delightsome, if I remember right. They were light-skinned uh, Hebrews. Very European-looking, actually. While the Lamanites were a dark-skinned people. Um, you can kind of start to see little soul hints of, you know, white supremacy coming up here in a little bit. Mm. Um, the Nephites were kind of like the teachers, morally, right? They were the ones who were kind of, you know, sending prophets and mission missionaries to, and I'm using the Book of Mormon's, like, terms here, basically like these barbaric peoples, right? The Book of Mormon casts the Lamanites, a fictional people, as like these you know, brut brutal, you know, callous barbarians. So you can kind of see a big racial problem here. Um, oh, yeah. 
But but it's okay because according to the Book of Mormon here, um, eventually the Nephites get too proud, right? They get very haughty and self righteous and eventually they kind of lose favor with god and then the lamanites kind of start you know having some cool characters that quote unquote redeem them until eventually there's a gigantic fucking race war at the end of it um and the lamanites end up destroying the nephites except for a guy named uh moroni if i remember i think it's moroni could be wrong but i'm pretty sure a character named moroni and moroni is a nephite and he's the one who buries these records, the golden tablets. Uh, and eventually, and it th later on, far in the future, we're <laughs> I know I'm info-bombing you again, dear listeners, and your brain is probably like, what the fuck is he talking about? Um, why is he rambling about this? But it's really just to give you kind of like a rundown of what Mormonism is if you're not familiar with it. So over time, we go back to Joseph Smith, right? He's already had his first vision and then he has a second vision. And then he sees a vision of an angel from the titular Moroni. <laughs> and Moroni tells him about the golden plates, you know, and where to find them. And he finds the golden plates in this hill and he uses these seer stones to translate the Book of Mormon. Um, the Book of Mormon is, according to the LDS Church, written in a script called uh, Reformed Egyptian. Okay, not Hebrew, um, but Reformed Egyptian. Needless to say, there is no such language ever called Reformed Egyptian, but <laughs> that's a minor detail in the grand scheme of things. Um, <laughs> But going back to the conversation we had, they mentioned a little bit about that, um, how the gospel has been on the earth since Adam, which I kind of probed at that a little bit too. I'm like, uh, wait, how is that possible? <laughs> like, if, if the gospel, the good news, the good message, if you were, if you will, was present during the time of Adam, um, why do things start to go downhill then? <laughs> like... For anyone who has any familiarity with the Bible, everyone should know that the story of Adam and Eve immediately goes downhill. <laughs> Things start to really fucking suck right after that story happens. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I... So I, I asked about that, you know, and they kind of like, I don't remember what he said. It probably wasn't that important how he explained it. It's like, I think he backpedaled a little bit is what happened. Um... And then starts talking about how, you know, the gospel can lead you to this happy life with purpose. Because God has a purpose for all of us, right? God's, yeah. God wants us to be more like him. To grow and evolve spiritually and blah, 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 blah. Um, and the gospel gives people hope and purpose and all this other bullshit. And eventually, you know, they wanted to talk with me more and you know, see if I had any questions. And I'm ever the inquisitive sort, especially when I'm getting presented a story like the fucking Book of Mormon, uh, one that I am no stranger to. I have only read some of the actual Book of Mormon. Uh, it is a very boring book. 
I'm not gonna lie. And I'm not saying that to be petty. That book is actually, it is a very fucking boring text. Um, there is a reason why Mark Twain is quoted as having called the Book of Mormon chloroform <laughs> in print. Um, <laughs> and that man could lay on some fucking burns. <laughs> So, the Book of Mormon, in my opinion, is very incredible in that it has such interest... It tells what are potentially such interesting stories, albeit fictional, in the most boring, driest fucking way possible, making them actually very boring stories. You can have an interesting, goofy concept, like ancient Hebrews crossing the Mediterranean Ocean in wooden submarines to land in North America, right? That sounds like, okay, that story is- That sounds awesome, dude. Yeah, that's a story you want to hear more about, right? Well, the way the Book of Mormon tells it is so goddamn fucking boring and it drags on. It's like, you don't even care anymore. <laughs> like, Joseph Smith it was a shitty fucking writer. Um, it's a very repetitive book, right? It You'll just find whole verses where it's just like, and verily, verily, uh, Nephi told dickface, and then verily, verily, <laughs> Nephi told ass breath, and then verily, verily, and it just it follows that very. Boring. That would make it more entertaining, yo. You would think, but no, it it's boring. It is actually a very boring experience to kind of like process all these times that this this Hebrew uh, speaking in. Like King James English saying, and verily, verily, all the fucking time. Verily, verily. So, yeah. Um, that's the Book of Mormon. It's boring. Um, it's not real either. I'm just going to say that there. Nothing has ever been found by any historian, uh, scholar, or any other professional in any field that could validate it, that does validate it. Um, Needless to say, uh, Native Americans are not descended from ancient Israelites. That, that is not a thing. Um, that is not even covering the more racist beliefs that the early church has kind of quietly retconned. Um, because remember before, in this long monologue of mine, of stupid bullshit that I have recited you, dear listener, that I mentioned a concept called the pre-mortal existence, right? Well, the early Mormon church uh, basically used this concept of the pre-mortal existence to justify a policy of racial discrimination against black members. So remember also the concept of authority or priesthood, right? Priesthood authority, right? Mm. So. Yeah. Priesthood authority was something that was off limits to black folks until like the late 1960s in the LDS church. Um, and the justification for that discrimination was that, and this is coming from earlier so-called Mormon prophets, by the way, um, that the souls of people who were born black on earth were not as valiant or not as morally upstanding as their white counterparts in this pre-mortal existence. Um, and in a way, too, that was not that concept was not only used to dis, you know, to justify racist church policy. Um, it was also used to justify other stuff, you know, 
like, you know, why does God allow someone to be born with like crippling severe diseases or disabilities, right? Well, then you can kind of fall back on that concept and saying, oh, well, they must have been, you know, not as morally good or worthy as other people were in the pre-mortal existence. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a thing. <laughs> that's all a thing. And um, what else? I actually really didn't, we actually didn't really talk much about that. Because remember, this is just the introductory shit. <laughs> and a lot of the times, if you do know this doctrine of their church and their history, a lot of the times they either try to defend it or they don't know about it. And then yeah, you, they're kept from it, yeah. Yeah, and then you can kind of see the cognitive dissonance on their faces. But that's not what happened over the weekend. Because this was a very casual, hour-long conversation, right? Where I would, you know, introduce more of my background. You know, I'm an atheist, blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm kind of fine with life not really having an inherent purpose, you know? Because that kind of lets me figure that out for myself. And to kind of i find it more liberating if that makes sense i find you we're know, free yeah yeah we're free to make our own destiny and so on and so forth um so it was usually it was mostly me just kind of responding with probing questions about something they would say um haven't really scheduled a follow-up meeting with them yet but eventually i will and then usually when it comes to the second or third meetings, I typically a little bit, I usually ask kind of more deeper questions. I kind of start asking questions about um, the church's treatment towards minorities, the church's treatment toward LGBTQ people, um, its treatment towards women, the historicity of the Book of Mormon, and so on and so forth. So that was my weekend. That was my Saturday afternoon with the Mormon missionaries. I really did not expect that I would take that long to hash over Mormonism again. And we're already at the 50 out. We're at the 50 minute mark. You talked as long as when you were talking with them. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't get it. So is their purpose to convert you, maybe? Yes. So basically, uh. what they try to do is, you know, because they they believe, well, most of them believe, um, others kind of know that the book is bullshit, but essentially the, the goal of a missionary is to get you to open up the Book of Mormon, but not only to read and study the Book of Mormon, but to pray about it because Mormonism is a religion about feels over reels. Okay. Oh. Or, or well, well, to be more accurate, you know, if you feel it's real, it's real. And if you, you don't feel anything yet, that's okay. Because God kind of moves at his own pace in our lives. You might not feel anything if you ask, because they basically want you to ask God if the Book of Mormon is real, right? That's what they, yeah. that's, that's what they challenge and invite you to do. They'll usually say, we invite you to read the Book of Mormon and to ask God to, see, to know if this book is true or not. So how do you respond? So, so for anybody out there, 
What would you say? How do you respond to a Mormon who asks you to pray? I usually ask, I actually throw them off by asking, wait, how does this, how is this going to lead me to the truth if other people pray about their own uh, different religious beliefs and then they follow a completely different other path, right? So I usually use the examples of Muslim friends that I have, right? Uh, some of them who are pretty fucking convinced and pray just as much, if not more. Because remember, Muslims typically pray five times a fucking day um, about their stuff being true, right? So yeah. I ask them usually in response to that, I'm like, how is this going to help? You know? And then they usually, I usually get different responses every time I ask that. Um, and this time they were like, well, sometimes, you know, God will, even if, how do I describe, how did he describe this? Um, so let's say, you know, about like one of my friends who became Muslim, right? I have like a mm -hmm. former friend, uh, more like a friend of a friend, but I, I called her my friend just for giving me sake. And I said that, you know, hey, I had this friend who converted to Islam uh, why would God direct her to Islam, a religion that contradicts Christianity, specifically on the topic of the divinity of Jesus? So, obviously, we all know in Christianity that, you know, Jesus is the son of God or, you know, part of like a trinity, right? A triune God. Um, however, in Islam, Jesus, although being revered highly as a very important prophet, is not the son of God because they genuinely believe that God would have no son. They kind of believe that would violate God's yeah. oneness. You know, they, they think that kind of leans into polytheism, right? So oh, yeah. why would God, I asked them, you know, take my friend to this religion, which contradicts, you know, this very foundational belief that your church has is. And they kind of responded, well, God tends to, like, what they thought was that God uses that to kind of bring him, as, bring a person as close as possible to him. So, in a way, we, according to them, we all follow Christ if we are living good lives, good moral lives. We can follow Christ without even actually realizing we're following Christ. Whoa, wait a minute. So can, like... Muslims and the rest, uh, you know, going to heaven? Muslim heaven? Uh, wait, what do you mean? Do you mean in Mormonism, do they believe Muslims can go to heaven? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they believe Muslims go to heaven. Um, Shit, that's pretty tolerant. Well, here's the thing, though. <laughs> well, you're talking about the multiple heavens and stuff? Right, so Mormonism teaches this thing called the plan of salvation, right? And in the plan of salvation, right after the second coming, right after the resurrection, right after Judgment Day, um, there are three heavenly kingdoms plus, you know, their version of hell, which they prefer to call outer darkness, but it's, it's, it's hell. So you typically get assigned to one of these three celestial, these three kingdoms, right? <laughs> um, after the judgment. And all the good Mormons get to go to the Celestial Kingdom, which is the best of the best heavens. Um, everyone else who lives a pretty good moral life 
um, ends up in like the second heaven, which is pretty dope compared, you know, it's not as great as the first heaven. You know, people there aren't getting spiritual families to become gods themselves, but they're living pretty happy heavens. And then there's the third kingdom. And I think that one's called the Telestial Kingdom. And it is, it's also a heaven. And it's also pretty good, but it's kind of like shopping at Aldi, if you will. Um, it's Aldi. No, actually, no, that's kind of insulting to Aldi. It's more like. I, I like shopping there. Yeah, I think it's more like great value heaven. How about that? Great value heaven? <laughs> so, yeah, the second heaven is more like Aldi heaven. Um, the third heaven is kind of great value heaven. And it, it's still heaven, you know. It's pretty great, and it's glorious in the church's teachings. Um, people who live sinful lives, um, murderers, killers, uh, criminals, Hitler, um, they all end up there. Adulterers. Well, did you mention Hitler? <laughs> um, yeah, that's the thing. I'm not even joking, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I am I'm dead fucking serious. Um, mo if you follow, if you have a good understanding of Mormon theology and logic and doctrine, um, you do kind of reach the inescapable conclusion that Hitler likely ends up in either the third heaven, most likely, or the second heaven, uh, because I, I don't even want to really get into Mormon baptism. <laughs> I don't really want to get into Mormon baptism right now. Um, or what's called baptism for the dead, which TLDR, uh, someone can get baptized on your behalf if you're dead and you're not already baptized. And you can do that with anybody, actually. You just got to know their name. And then you go into the temple you know, for this baptism ritual. And then, you know, they'll dunk your head in some water and they'll say, I baptize you, I baptize like Adolf Hitler, who who is dead as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, amen. And then dunk you in the water and then you do it with the next dead person. You can just do this with fucking anybody, actually. If they're, yeah. And uh, Hitler has been baptized post-mortem by somebody in the LDS church. That's that's a thing. So um, that means uh, Hitler will probably end up either in the first, or not the first, but the second or the third heaven after the day of judgment. So yeah, that's Mormonism. <laughs> Do you have any questions, Martin, before we go on to our main topic? <laughs> Which was no, not man, I mean... I, I know what I'm going to entitle this on YouTube. The Crazy Beliefs of Mormons. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's already a title. Um, <laughs> but corn, I'm going to break it down, too. Cornbread's Morm Mormon Missionary Experience. Um, so, yeah, that was not even going to be the main topic today, everybody. But by God, that probably took up the majority of this fucking podcast because this one's actually going to be a short one. Um... <laughs> We were actually going to talk about, not the, <laughs> we're actually going to talk about a completely different cult. Um, not Mormonism today. Um, we're actually going to be talking about a cult that checks off all the boxes that really, what this podcast was originally intended to cover. Um, religion and business. 
right? Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And tonight, we're going to talk about Nexium. So, Martin, do you know what Nexium is? I do. So, Nexium is a prescription medicine you can take if you're having troubles with incontinence or if you're having troubles with uh, the toe fungus, you know, whenever you stick your toe in a toilet, you know. That is what you can take to get rid of the toe fungus and the incontinence. Take Nexium. Well, you are close. Um, it's actually, or was actually, an American cult that yeah. was a privately held company, a multi-level marketing company um, that really focused on like the personal development, self-help industry, right? Um, oh God, that industry. Oh. And the funny thing about self-help and personal development, uh, but more of the self-help bullshit, is uh, George Carlin actually pointed this out. Um, if you're reading a book or going to a seminar, or watching a video about self-help. Well, it's not really self-help then, because someone's helping you. <laughs> uh, the author of the book is helping you. The person giving the seminar is helping you. Um, the person who made the video is helping you with whatever problem that you have. So it's not really self-help, but it's marketed as <laughs> self-help, which is, you know, leads more to the bullshit of it. But the more... S Nexium is a very notorious one. And, um, dear audience, uh, I will have to put a content warning for um, sex trafficking, forced labor, and um, sexual abuse. So when we start to cover or talk about accounts of these happening, I will let you know before we actually talk about it. Sound good? Excellent. All right. So like I said, Nexium was an American cult. Um, it, brand, it was founded in Clifton Park, New York, which is a suburb of Albany. Uh, and it purported to be a multi-level marketing company that offered clients personal and professional development through a series of seminars that they called the Executive Success Program. Uh, so the company... Can we, can we pause right here because... Yes. One of the things I hate are conferences and seminars. I don't know about you, but they really chap my ass they so chap, badly. They chap your and ass. They chap it, chap it, man. Chap, chap, chap. And I hate them because it's nothing but these people on a stage talking and you get the feeling that these people are higher than you, right? It's not like us with this podcast where, hey, we're just... Joe Smoes like you all out there and you're learning with us. But these conferences, these seminars, like, I hate them because of the intellectual chauvinism of them. Have, do you know what I'm talking about? Or am I just talking out of my butt that's been severely checked? Um, I would say it's, it's not just intellectual chauvinism, but it's also just pseudo-intellectual bullshit. <laughs> mm. Right? Um, sometimes it's just made-up bullshit about things people know nothing about whatsoever. So, but yeah, basically that's kind of what the company was purporting to do, right? Um, it was all about self-development and, you know, fulfilling your potential and all this bullshit. Yeah, and, and before you get to that too, yes. let's talk about 
MLMs, multi-level marketing. Marketing. Mm-hmm. Because we got to let the people know what they are in case somebody tries to get them to be a multi-level marketer. Right. And dear listener, you probably have encountered at least once uh, an attempt by a multi-level marketing company to either get you to buy a service or product from them or to actually be working for them, to be recruited by them, right? So uh, it's essentially... Pretty, the short version of it is a multi-level marketing company is kind of like a legal form of a pyramid scheme. Okay. <laughs> and sometimes it just flat out is a fucking pyramid scheme. So it's already so kind of... So what do you mean by that, yo? What do I mean by like a pyramid scheme? What do you mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know what a pyramid scheme is, man. I know what a pyramid is and I know what a scheme is. But like, are people trying to sell people pyramids? I wish because that would, you know, <laughs> that would be kind of cool. But unfortunately, no. So pyramid schemes are uh, business models that recruit members via promises of payment or services for rolling others into the pyramid scheme. So rather oh. rather than just selling like in, like products or investments or anything like that, the goal is recruiting, you know. Uh, as recruiting multiplies, recruiting becomes quickly over time impossible. It eventually reaches a breaking point. And right. as a result, most members in the pyramid, except for the very top, are ones who actually oh. profit from it. Hence the mm. main pyramid scheme. Get it? Okay. And there's usually different levels to it, right? Um, and over time, inevitably, in a pyramid scheme, most people end up kind of at, like, the base bottom of it. They're, because, you know, they're so busy recruiting and all this shit, right? And um, needless to say, may- pyramid schemes are illegal as fuck. <laughs> um, okay. So a multi-level marketing company relies on the pyramid structure, if you will, um, and also relies heavily on recruitment, but they also might do some sales on the side. Um, you know, companies like Amway, Mary Kay. Uh, oh. Yeah, Avon. Those Big are Cadillac ladies. Yeah, those are all oh. examples of multi-level marketing. Oh, I kind of see what you're saying now. I think my dad was into this, man, where he would buy, like, security products and he would try to sell those security products to other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes they sell other stuff and all that, you know, too. Like, I I don't remember what Amway but basi- sells. But basically, like, an MLM kind of, like, lures people in. It's like, hey, do you want to be your own boss? Do you want to, oh. you know, make your own money on your own time? Well, like, and then they kind of lure you in from there. You know, do you want to be an entrepreneur? Oh, and so the people who get lured into that try to lure other people in there. So it's like a, it's like, I guess, a a chain of trying to lure people. Because don't the more people that you lure, you get commission or something? Yeah, that's that's usually one big thing. Um, so some of the common elements in multi-level marketing are uh besides their similarity to pyramid schemes and their structure as well um they're typically sometimes result in like collusion racketeering 
um, the initial entry costs usually to get in because typically they have you buy a product or like like a starter kit for something, right? Yeah. Um, usually whatever it is you're selling. Um, and kind of like one of the more noteworthy things about them too is that they kind of rely on a lot of cult-like techniques, uh, which some groups typically use to enhance like member devotion and loyalty to the brand, right? It sounds like a religion, yo. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of overlap. And it's also kind of why, and I don't know if I mentioned this earlier before, that Mormons <laughs> Mormons actually are overrepresented in uh, multi-level marketing companies. Um, but oh, Nexium. Yeah. But this is what essentially the structure of Nexium, right? Well, before you get to Nexium, dude, I'm looking mm-hmm. right here at the multi-level marketing um, Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. And... It says that in multi-level marketing, the compensation plan usually pays out the participants from two potential revenue streams. So people get paid, generally speaking, from two ways. The first way is based on, you know, selling stuff, selling the product or the service. And the second way to get paid is to pay is paid out from the commissions based upon the wholesale purchases made by other sellers whom the participant has recruited to also sell product. So I guess these people not only make money from selling these products or services, but they also recruit recruit people. I said recruit. <laughs> recruit people to sell the stuff for them. And look at this statistic. Oh, this says that according to a report that studied the business models of 350 multi-level marketing companies in the United States, published on the Federal Trade Commission's website. According to this report, at least 99% of people who join multi-level marketing companies lose money. Mm-hmm. All right, so, wow. So Nexium is full of people who lost money. So let's get to them. And that's that's not even the worst. <laughs> that's literally the most... M- oh. M- that's not even the fucking worst part, dude. So, oh. so let's go into a little bit of history real quick. So and let's go into their name too. Right. N X I V M. Right. I don't really understand. Maybe the name will maybe if we read a little bit more, the name will become clear. Okay. It sounds like pretentious Latin bullshit. Yeah. Um so let's see. Pull up my sources here. Uh da, 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 da. so in 1998, a guy named Keith Renier and, and a lady, uh, a former psychiatric nurse, Nancy Salzman, they found this company, Nexium, and it's a mm. it's branded and sold as a purported self-help organization in Albany, New York, right? Okay. So, and these are very interesting characters, too, especially Keith Renier who's kind of like the villain. <laughs> Definitely the villain who is centered around the story, right? So before founding Nexium, Renier created a company called Consumers Byline, which was a business venture that the New York Attorney General accused of having been a pyramid scheme. Um, <laughs> he signed, he, so he signs a consent order in 96 in which he denied any wrongdoing, but he agrees to pay the court $40,000, and he's permanently banned from promoting, offering, or granting participation 
in a chain distribution scheme, which is kind of very interesting. Um, so, but before that, though, in the 1980s, he was involved with an MLM company that we all know as Amway. Um, so, also during this time, um, he, he starts to get really interested in some other stuff, too. Um, namely, what's called neuro-linguistic prog- pro- programming, NLP. So, what the fuck is that, you might ask? Sounds like a scam, bro. Neuro-linguistic programming. So, it's a pseudoscientific approach to communication, personal development, and psychotherapy. Um, so, basically, some made-up bullshit. And the other made-up bullshit that he also gets very fascinated by is Scientology. Which also kind of brands itself as, like, a personal development practice right a religion too of course but it initially tried to present itself as an alternative to psychiatry self-fulfillment and so on and he's also making money as a side for uh you know as a computer programmer so you know he finds he, oh, he so he's that smart to be a programmer yeah um oh, yeah i mean and he did not grow up in like poverty either like his father was a, a new york city advertising executive and his mom was a russian ballroom dancer like a, a dance instructor um so they they were not hurting for money at like any time at all um his background is kind of weird so he attends this high school um suffer Suffern High School for ninth grade, and then he transfers to Rockland County Day School in Congers, which is a suburb hamlet somewhere in like New York, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when he's an adult, he reported or he tells the story apparently that he read Isaac Asimov's or like a book from Isaac Asimov called Second Foundation. And despite the name, it's actually the third book and some sci-fi works called the foundation series it's actually a really really great fucking series uh i read the first one called foundation very good sci-fi loved it as a kid Mm. so he claims that uh but this this, the thing about second foundation the story is that one of the themes kind of heavily focuses on mind control which is a uh going to be a running theme here in this story okay so he claims that he read this at age 12 and he kind of credits this book as one of his inspirations when he founds nexium okay um he's also kind of got like a religious side to him right so he had a former partner by the name of barbara boucher i think i don't know i think the name is barbara boucher and she eventually shared some stories about his childhood, which she claimed to have been told by his father. Um, and here's a direct quote. What we did is we told Keith, Keith Renier, about how gifted and intelligent he was. And he said it was almost like a switch went off. And suddenly overnight, he turned into Jesus Christ and that he was superior and better than everybody, like he was a deity. He said that, it was dramatic and profound. He said it went right to his head. So he's kind of like admitting here to this partner of his that 
He's basically a fucking narcissist. Mm. Um, very overgrandized self-image. Um, she also tells another story, Barbara Boucher, uh, where she recalls an account about a 13-year-old Reniere's relationship with girls. Uh, and I'm quoting oh, here... no. Quoting here again. This is like when... Keith Rainier is 13, by the way. Um, Dozens of young girls were calling the house, and Rainier's mother was overhearing his conversations with them, where he was telling every single girl the same thing. I love you. You're the special one. You're important. You're You're the only one in my life, and I love you. And she says he's saying this to all these girls. He's clearly lying, because all of them are not special. Um, So he's showing signs of, at least, I mean, this is anecdotal, but he's showing signs of, you know, just being a manipulative little dickhead. And he's showing signs of antisocial personality, man. And not only that, this is kind of ironic, too. So in 1982, Rainier graduates from the Renes... What is this? The Renesleer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, with a shitty-ass GPA of 2.26. And he, having failed or barely passed many of the upper-level math and science classes that he bragged about taking. So he's actually, as manipulative as he is, he's actually not that bright. Um, at least not academically. Um, I mean, he just didn't apply himself, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that could be it, too. So, getting into his early adulthood, after he graduates with this kind of mediocre GPA, uh, in 1984, according to reporting by the Albany Times Union, the then-24 Renier allegedly had a sexual relationship... Oh, okay. Uh, Content warning. (laughs) Content warning, everybody, for, um, uh, I guess, pedophilia. So, if that's not your thing, I would recommend tuning out for, like, five seconds. Okay? So, the then 24-year allegedly had a sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl named Gina Melita after the two met in a theater group. After ending their relationship, Melita introduced him to her friend, Gina Hutchinson, also 15, with whom he also became sexually involved. After Gina's sister, Heidi, found Renier climbing into her bedroom window and confronted the pair, Renier told her that Gina was a Buddhist goddess meant to be with him. A Buddhist goddess, huh? It's like a chocolate cow. It doesn't exist no way, no how. I don't know. <laughs> Good run. Uh, so oh, that's KRS-One. It ain't me. <laughs> yeah. So we already, we're also seeing, you know, a pattern of just like hypersexuality, especially towards younger girls. It could also be pedophilia. I'm not sure, but very cringe, pretty gross sexual stuff here. So oh, yeah. this girl These call leaders are perverts, man. Yeah. So Gina Hutchinson drops out of school and continues to have this relationship with Keith Renier, and she also works at his multi-level marketing company, Consumer Byline. Uh, so come October 2002, she was found dead of a gunshot wound to her head on the grounds of the Karma Tiryana Dharma Chakra Buddhist Monastery in Woodstock from an apparent suicide. So I feel like I probably should, should have put a content warning there. So sorry about that, folks. Um, pretty fucked up stuff. 
So, in June of 1998, the Times Union profiled Rainier, reporting on his membership in the Mega Society. Now, what the fuck is the Mega Society, you might ask? Well, the Mega Society is a high IQ society open to people who have scored at the one in a million level on a test of general intelligence, claim to be able to discriminate at that level. What the fuck does that part mean? I don't know. So basically, it's a it's one of those shitty, stupid, oh, like yeah. Mensa bullshit. You know? Yeah. Ridiculous. After he achieved the high score on the Founders test, an unsupervised. 48-question test published <laughs> in the April 1985 issue of Omni Magazine. What the fuck is Omni Magazine, I wonder? It was a science and science fiction magazine published in the U.S. and U.K. That's a fucking dope-ass looking cover, though. Uh, well, wait a minute. What? So there's an IQ test in the science and science fiction magazine? Yeah, and I'm going to show you a link to which one it was. I'm just fucking loving that fucking cover page, though. Damn. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. That's nice, yeah. That looks... I love graphic... Graphics design is my passion. So, yeah. Although the mega test had been widely criticized as not having been properly validated, in the, 19, the 1989 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records, the last to include a category for the highest IQ, described the Hofflin Research Group as the most exclusive ultra-high IQ society. In the 1998 Australian edition identified Rainier, Marilyn... V Who the fuck is this? Marilyn Vossavant and Eric Hart as the highest scoring members of the group. So he's being lumped in to uh, these smart people, apparently. <laughs> these fucking yeah. nerds. Um, over a very questionable test. So we're seeing a lot of patterns here that are very troubling. Um, Interest in Scientology, interest in religion, interest in, you know, very young under, girls, very young girls, um, very manipulative behaviors, um, just seems totally okay with lying, too, of course. And with a very overinflated view of himself, he eventually founds Consumers Byline in 1990, which, multi-level marketing company. Um... It was at a C, what's called a CBI pitch meeting, which I guess is probably like the acronym for the company. So at a pitch, just imagine these stupid meetings, man. I hate these corporate meetings. Oh yeah. Well, it was here that Keith Rainier meets Tony Natalie, who subsequently became a top seller for the organization along with her then husband, uh, Natalie, and her son eventually moved to Clifton Park, New York, to be close to Rainier. Uh, her marriage to her then-husband ended shortly after that. Jeez, I wonder why. wonder how that happened. Natalie and Rainier date for the next eight fucking years. That's a, yeah. That's a long time. Well, what it, this, this, uh, this is also indicative of a cult leader right here. You want to F everything in sight. Right. And you are kind of like... I don't know the inter the details of their relationship, but I definitely would not be surprised if he had a role in like getting them to break up. Yeah. Um, it's also part of antisocial personality disorder. Um, 
high sexual promiscuity. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ever heard of the uh, the Robert Hare test. I think I've heard of it before, yeah. Isn't yeah. it like a uh, test for psychopaths? Yeah, psychopaths, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, after, you know, he gets into this relationship with uh, Natalie, Tony Natalie, uh, the operations of the the company, CBI, were restricted in 1993 after the company was inve- investigated by 20 states. Uh, and this is kind of when the New York State Attorney General filed a lawsuit about the company being a pyramid scheme. So eventually, Consumer Bylines Incorporated was permanently shut down in September 1996 by the Attorney General of New York. And Rainier as we mentioned earlier, signed a consent order which permanently barred him from promoting, offering, or granting participation in chain distribution schemes and ordered him to pay the $40,000 fine. Why not just put him in jail? Like, what? This guy's clearly a parasite, parasite, parasite to society. Put him in jail. Throw him away. Lock the key. Make sure that he spends every day begging because he's losing his sanity. F him, man. Look at the damage he did after this. These government guys don't care about putting bad people away. They care about getting money because they had to pay a fine. This bullshit. <laughs> I, I fucking agree. So after, you know, CBI, you know, gets shut down, what happens next? Um, well, apparently, actually, this appears to be concurrent with CBI. While it was still going, he actually started another company, another multi-level marketing company called National Health Network in 1994. And it is basically like a multi-level marketing company that sold vitamins and shit. The business... Yep. The business fails in 1999, and in the mid-1990s, Renier and Natalie uh, eventually open up a different, like, health product store or some bullshit like that. So, 1998, though, is when we start to see the the actual formation of Nexium, right? So, how does that, oh, yeah. how does that happen? So, in 1998... Tony Natalie, his girlfriend, meets a psychiatric nurse named Nancy Salzman. And she's very interesting because she's a trained practitioner of hypnotism and the previously mentioned neurolinguistic programming. You know, uh, the thing that he, Keith Renier was very interested in back in the day. Uh, and here's an account from Tony Natalie about the meeting. Nancy said, you're so wonderful. How can I help you? So I said, well, you can help me with my boyfriend. He had grandois ideas and his hours were becoming erratic again. She listened and she said, oh, that's easy. I can help you. He's a sociopath. (laughs) They met and four days later, she came out with the glazed eyes and gave me the you don't know who he is. And I was like, wow, there goes another one. Wow. Damn. So he basically put this woman in a trance. Yeah. So he put this woman. So check this out. This yeah. woman's 
profession, her job is to put people in a trance, and this fool put her in a trance. Wow, man. This mo. Nancy, Nancy Salzman is a very interesting character. Um, so, she eventually becomes one of the co-founders of Nexium, you know, with Keith Renier, right? So, her background, you know, she... This was kind of like at a time when hypnotism was still kind of considered a more... I, don't, I mean, there's still some practices that use hypnotism to some extent. Yeah. Um, so she's she was listed in the nurses database as having been a as having a nurses license god damn it a nursing license in the state of New York from 1983 to its expiration in 2019. She graduated from Cranford High School in New Jersey in 1972 and then later and she graduated later from Union College in Schenectady, New York. I don't know how the fuck to pronounce that. <laughs> uh mm. So what was she doing before that? You know, before Nexium, right? Um, she joined forces with Renier uh, when he was developing what was called the Executive Success Programs, which would later be rebranded as Nexium. Uh, mm, she kind okay. of, she was kind of, so as the co-founder, Salzman has considerable authority as an acting president in the company. And she eventually people within the company start re referring to her as prefect like in the religious sense yeah so that's kind of all i found about her background there right so yeah 1998 is when they found the company as executive success programs uh and since then, since its founding, an estimated 18,000 people enrolled in the group's workshops. Uh, most participants only take a few classes, and some members eventually become like very diehard, ardent followers of Keith Renier, and they give him the title of Vanguard, and they like really are in love with this dude. They call him like the most ethical man in the world, right? really weird fucking shit <laughs> so yeah this guy's up there with joseph because we talked about mormonism this guy's up there with joseph smith and his con man abilities man oh yeah i agree there's probably a lot of over there's a lot of fucking <laughs> there's not properly there is a lot of overlap between joseph smith and keith renier um also in 1998 Re keith renier meets another person named christine marie melnakos and she's like a recently divorced mom who was actually a she won the title of Mrs. Michigan in 1995. So I think she's like a former model, you know. That's petty theft, man. Petty theft. Petty theft. <laughs> <laughs> I don't fucking know what this is, shit is. See, I don't know. I was just making a joke, yo. Oh, okay. It went over my fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> so Melanakos recalled that Keith Renier explained how there was a profound event that would often happen to the women who became intimate with him, right? And sometimes they'd see like a blue light. Oh, God. <laughs> and I, I'm quoting, I'm quoting here. Oh, this guy's sling is some massive dick. Ultimately, she agreed to be intimate with Keith. 
and it was just as he said she saw a blue light but i don't think i'm i'm quoting ultimately i agreed to be in, intimate with keith and it was just as he said i even saw a blue light but i don't think i told him so i remember thinking wow my brain is really susceptible to the power of suggestion so there's a lot and of sir, there's a lot of self-awareness here right Shit, hold on she's intimate with him mm-hmm She's seeing blue lights afterward. Yeah. Like, this dude is a fucking pimp. Kind of, yeah. There are pimps who kind of, if I remember right, actually use... What is he putting in her body when he's in coitus with her that's making her see blue lights? Like, what is going on? Well, it's not something that he's... (laughs) I know what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not something that he's like putting in her direct physically but mentally so i'm also sharing with you a very hard to follow chart of all the very interesting philosophical influences that go into keith renier and his formation of nexium right he borrows from a lot of different stuff from he borrows some thought from ayn rand he borrows a lot of thought from Tony Robbins, apparently. Most of uh, these people are douches. Yeah. Alistair Crowley, douchebag. Ron Hubbard, douchebag. Ayn Rand, douchebag. Tony Robbins, douchebag. Man, he got some bad, he got some stupid influences, man. He he borrows a lot from a different, from a lot of different sources when it comes to, like, the teachings of Nexium. So, from Ayn Rand, for example, from objectivism, she kind of borrows the idea of, like, parasites you know yeah. mooches yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah mooches to society i.e poor people she would say yeah L- Her, man yeah and from l ron hubbard you know in scientology there's this idea of suppressives you know people who are hostile to you and your religion right and these are bad people um and he also borrows like a lot of different shit too from all kinds of place um and these kind of form the practices of nexium so over time let me see here let me get back to my spot okay so rainier and you know this nurse nancy salzman uh they found let's see here i'm trying to go because this feels like it's kind of just repeating itself here you know executive success programs is founded as a personal development company and they offer this wide range of techniques that are, you know, guaranteed to provide you self-improvement. So as the years go on, the program eventually becomes Nexium, and Rainier starts calling himself Vanguard. It's actually from a fucking video game, Vanguard. It's a, uh, it's like an old ass like arcade scrolling shooter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very interesting. I've never actually played this game. Huh. Well. So, he starts calling himself Vanguard. It's like if I started calling myself, like, Master Chief or some shit like that. (laughs) If I founded a cult slash MLM, and I just decide, I'm the CEO of the company, but I want you to call me Master Chief. (laughs) Um. So, he borrows the title, you know, from the game in which the destruction of one's enemies increased one's own power. (laughs) Very telling. So much of... This guy is a devil, man. He's a devil with a 
mad, with some type of sexual powers, man. Mm-hmm. And of course, and this is like very well cited, uh, much of Nexium's influences along this is kind of repetitive, you know. Ayn Rand is a huge influence on Nexium and Keith Rainier. So Rainier's eight-year relationship with uh, Tony Natalie ends in 1999, and she later claims to be a victim of harassment. Uh, in January 2003, um, a federal judge named a guy named Judge Robert Littlefield implied that Rainier was using a legal suit to harass his former partner. Littlefield wrote, This matter smacks of a jilted fellow's attempt at revenge or retaliation against his former girlfriend, with many attempts at tripping her up along the way. So, so he's, he's just using these people and kicking the curb when he's done, man. Yeah, essentially. You know, Jesus, you, man. You go against him, you are the enemy. Um, so in 2002... Keith Rainier and Nancy Salzman succeed in recruiting a bunch of members from a very influential family called the Brothman family. It's like a Canadian family that holds a bunch of like business holdings. Oh yeah. Oh, including uh, Seagram's. Yeah, they're heirs to the Seagram family fortune, right? Yeah, multi-billion dollars, man. So, you know the Seagrams, the alcoholic, whatever. I don't drink alcohol. It tastes like garbage to me. All alcohol does. Yeah, they have but. a non-alcoholic version too. But yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So members of this family, like Sarah Bronfman, get involved, and then her sister Claire, and apparently her father, Edgar Bronfman Sr., takes an Nexium course like a year later, in like the yes, early man. 2000s. Like, um, that's crazy that you're able to fool like these multi billionaires, man. Rich people <laughs> seem very easy to dupe. Somehow. Yeah, it's very fucked. <laughs> so they're not not only are they getting followers, they're getting fucking billionaires and rich kids. Cults really love rich people, believe it or not. <laughs> of course I mean, they do, yeah, man. Yeah, I mean Scientology look at Scientology. Um yeah, and then something very interesting happens. So this woman named Kristen Marie Schneider gets involved she was a 35 year old environmental consultant who in november 2002 paid seven thousand dollars to enroll in a 17 day course uh conducted in anchorage alaska hosted by nancy salzman seven thousand dollars yep damn girl what is wrong with you and then the following january of that year Snyder travels to New York State to visit Keith Rainier and other leaders at Nexium. Snyder's mother recalled that her daughter had come to believe she was responsible for the Columbia shuttle disaster. Um, what? Yeah. For all those of you who don't remember, um, it was a fatal incident in uh, February of 2003 when the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated as it re-entered the atmosphere and it killed all of its seven crew members. Um, along with, you know, basically worshipping fucking Keith Renier. So Snyder, accompanied by her partner, Heidi Clifford, signed up for a second 16-day course in Anchorage. So she's fucking hooked into this. 
On February 6, 2003, the 10th day of the second seminar, Schneider reportedly began claiming to be pregnant with Rainier's child, a claim allegedly collaborated by Claire Bronfman. And Clifford recalled, I was told by a Nexium instructor not to bring her to the hospital. That's what makes me feel really bad. So, this girl's pregnant. And allegedly, it's Keith Rainier's child. And she's being told by people to not go to the hospital when she's not feeling well, right? Snyder was last seen leave... Let's see. Schneider was last seen leaving the section of the course. Her vehicle was discovered two days later in Seward, Alaska, 120 miles from Anchorage. Police recovered a note that read, I attended a course called Executive Success Programs, based out of Anchorage, Alaska, and Albany, New York. I was brainwashed, and my emotional center of the brain was killed slash turned off. I still have feeling in my external skin, but my internal organs are rotting. I am sorry, life. I didn't know I was already dead. May we persist into the future. A separate page added, no need to search for my body. Yo. Oof. That was disturbing, man. Yeah. That legit, that legit made my, made the hair on my arm go up like that was disturbing man yeah where is this woman's body at right now yo what happened to her no one hasn't been found at least not to my knowledge i can't believe that man i'm looking up her in google seeing if she's been found yet man it's poor fucked this poor woman who seemed to have a mental illness yo yeah and that was just like one person in the grand scheme of things, too. There were call allegations about Nexium as far as, like, the early 2000s, right? So, the, the so-called training methods and shit in Nexium are considered a trade secret, and they're subject to, or they were anyway, to non-disclosure agreements. Uh, but they apparently reportedly used a technique the organization calls rational inquiry to facilitate personal and professional development. So in 2003, Nexium sues the Ross Institute in a case known as Nexium Court versus Ross Institute, alleging copyright infringement for publishing experts, excerpts of content from its manual and three critical articles commissioned by cult investigator Rick Allen Ross, uh, so the Ross Institute, for all of you who don't know, let me see here. Let me pull that up real quick because I don't think I've even heard of them. Um, so the Ross Institute is kind of like a group that deprograms people suspected to be in cults. Okay, it's a that's cult. good. That's yeah. positive. Founded by a guy named Rick Allen Ross. So. You know, their whole goal is deprogramming, essentially, and call okay. in investigating organizations. Hell so, yeah, man. So Ross posts a psychiat like a psychiatrist's assessment of Nexium's training manual, its secret secret training manual, on his website that was called the red and he calls the regimen basically just fucking extensive expensive brainwashing. So 
Ross obtains a manual from former member Stephanie Franco, and she's a co-defendant in this trial, you know, Nexium Court versus the Ross Institute, because they're they're going they're at court at this point. So Stephanie Franco signed uh, an NDA agreement to basically not divulge any information about the manual to others. So Nexium filed lawsuits in New York and New Jersey, and they both get dismissed, which is good. So on appeal, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit basically confirms the dismissal, and they rule that the defendant's critical analysis was, of material was obtained in bad faith, basically in, dis, in violation of an NDA, and that it was fair use, and since the secondary use was considered transformative, as criticism and not as a potential replacement for the original on the market. So basically, <laughs> Nexium was trying to sue the Ross Institute, like, you're infringing on our copyright because you're posting this on your website. Um, but technically, the court basically ruled it as actually fair use because fair use. because it's offered as a criticism. It's, it's, it's a fair use. It's, it's considered transformative. So, and that's totally allowed. And it was considered like, um, I, I guess they kind of found the Nexium, you know, lawyers to be in bad faith and shit like that. So eventually, you know, they essentially lost this in court. So in October, 2003, Forbes published a critical article on Nexium and Rainier. According to Vanity Fair, Nexium leadership who had spoken to Forbes, had expected, you know, a pretty positive story for some fucking reason. They were especially upset by remarks made by Bromfman, who told Forbes that he believed Nexium was a cult and that he was troubled by his daughter's emotional and financial investment in it. In 2006, Forbes published another article about the Bronfman sisters, stating that they had taken out a line of credit to loan Nexium $2 million. Oh. So that's how these cults get the money. And here's the kicker. It's repayable through personal training sessions and phone consultations with Nancy Salzman. Another Forbes article in 2010 discussed the failures of commodities and real estate deals by the Bronfins made on Keith Rainier's advice. So they're, they're like in this completely. They're taking like financial advice from Keith fucking Renier at this oh, point. shit, man. Like, so, this is like... Think about it, though. Think, let's pause right here, because them Brothman sisters, right, the heirs to the Seagram's fortune, mm -hmm. they take out a line of credit to Nexium for $2 million, and Nexium basically tells them, you can repay that, through personal training sessions and phone consultations with Salzman? Like, what? Mm-hmm. Man, I just can't believe the chains that we human beings put ourselves under. Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. What is the matter? Why is this so strange? What's going on, man? God, mm -hmm. that just pisses me off. Why can't we be free? But we got these grifters out there trying to make us use lines of credit. Bring, oh man, it makes me so angry. Especially when it's a fucking psychopath, too. So, yeah, it's in the early. 
a psychopath, but he's genuinely a guy that we can that we fellow men can be jealous of because when he makes love to a woman, they see lights and blue lights and stuff. Like, goddamn, son. Holy mackerel. I don't How know. the hell do you do that? Maybe he just pulls like a flashlight and he shines it in their <laughs> eyes real quick. Like, you know when you look at like a, a bright light for too long and you look away, there's like that dark blue kind of like blur. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was that and he was just kind of like mentally convincing them that it was something else, you know? It's like, hey, you're going to see a blue light. Boop. Aha. Uh -huh. wow. And he just like <laughs> hides the flashlight when they, when they don't see. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not really interested in how this man fucks. So <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I've never heard of anybody ever, like, saying, yeah, baby, I can make you see lights when I make love to you. It's like, Man. See, if it were anybody else, that would probably be charming. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I know, this guy's a P-O-S. A P-O-S, capital letters. A P-P-P-O-O-S-S. -S. Right hate on. Him. So we're gonna, we're gonna skip forward to 2000 to uh, this time frame between 2006 and 2015, and this involves an actress by the name of Kristen Kruk. No, <laughs> Canadian actress Kristen debuted on teen drama Edgemont. Oh, she was no, in Smallville. I know her from Smallville. Yes. Yeah, she was in fucking Smallville, no. and she was no. like, yeah, among other things. So she got involved in Nexium in 2006. God damn, this guy has like a, uh, uh, what do you call it? A fief, not a fiefdom, but a, what, a king who has a lot of women or a sultan who has a, a lot of women. What's that called? Like, I don't like a harem or some shit. I don't know. A harem. He's got a harem yeah. of these actresses, man. These pretty actresses. I hate this guy so much. Yeah, rich people, even when they're successful in their careers, have a lot of, you know, vulnerabilities and insecurities and their own problems in life. I want to eat this fucking guy's kids. That's how bad I hate him. Yeah, well... That's from Tyson, by the way. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, she gets involved in 2006. And um, apparently, you know, Nancy Salzman and Nancy Salzman's daughter named Lauren Salzman, she's like a junior Nexium executive, they all go to Vancouver... And they kind of recruit her and her co-star, Allison Mack, from also Smallville, too. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. So Lauren, you know, Nancy's daughter, bonds with Allison Mack. The two women eventually became Rainier's inner circle and later sexual partners. Uh, Kriuk, however, I hope I'm pronouncing her name, her last name right. Crook? Is it Crook? I'm going to say Crook. Uh, she leaves Nexium in 2013. Allison Mack, though, becomes this enthusiastic prolestizer for Nexium, and she starts to persuade her own parents to take these courses. And after wrapping up production of Smallville in 2011, they all move to, guess what, Clifton fucking Park, New York. And Damn, he's persuading them to move, too. Like, what is... Yep. So, this guy is like a demon from hell, man. Yeah. And remember... Nexium's home, like headquarters, is Albany. Hey, so, 2008, the Brothman sisters allegedly pressure somebody named Stephen Herbitz, who's kind of like a confidant of their father, you know, Edgar. And then they ask the uh, Albany County District Attorney, David Soros. Uh, the New York governor at the time, Elliot Spitzer, and New Jersey Attorney General 
and Milgram to begin criminal investigations into Nexium's critics. So we're starting to see things unfold a little bit. Also, yeah. were you, oh, I was wondering if you were still there or not. <laughs> no, I'm here. I'm just processing this, man. Yeah. And also, I'm taking notes. Uh, I know a little bit about Elliot Spitzer and the scandal he was involved in. New, by the way, New York state politics is some of the most corrupt politics that I've ever heard of, man. Oh, hell yeah, dude. My gosh. Oh. So, F you. so they're basically trying to, like, put some pressure on all these officials to begin criminal investigation into Nexium critics. Not Nexium, they're fucking critics. Yeah, man. So, Nexium reportedly kept dossiers on Soros. So, is it Soros or Soros? I think it's Soros. I'm going to say Soros. Soros, Spitzer, and political consultant... Oh, Roger Stone. <laughs> Roger Stone. <laughs> this slimy fucking pig fucker here. Along with U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer and Albany Times Union publisher George Randolph Hearst III in a box in the basement of Nancy Salzman's home. According to the Times Union, Nexium developed a reputation for aggressively pursuing critics and defectors who broke from their ranks included using litigation to punish critics of Rainier, the organization, or its training methods. Some real Scientology bullshit, right? So in steps in the World Ethical Foundations Consortium, which was actually an organization founded by Keith Rainier and the Bronfman sisters. And this organization sponsored a visit to Albany by the fucking Dalai Lama in 2009. Alright, well check this out. Here's one thing I noticed from these names that Keith Rainier is naming his organizations. Mm -hmm. The more like, the more they're, the more that these organizations names are sounding fake, the more like you can't trust them. Like the World Ethical Foundation Consortium. Yeah. Like, come on. That, yeah. That's not real. There's a, um, and I'm using this in air quotes, a human rights educational nonprofit that's basically run by Scientology, and it has like a very generic sounding name. What's it called? I, I forget. It's like... Oh, man. Uh, you can just type in like Scientology human rights. And, uh, yeah, and I'm going to do that. NGO or some shit. Um, maybe you'll find it. I don't remember the name. So, let's see here. Youth so, for Human Inter Rights International? That's them, yeah, yeah. Basically, they aim to teach teenagers about human rights and shit. And then I actually took... It was like part of a class that one of my instructors, you know, assigned to us for like... Basically getting an idea of like the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And... Mm. Everything seemed kind of cheesy, but, you know, like, whatever. It seemed to teenagers or some shit. So, one thing immediately caught me as a big red flag is when it started talking about copyright infringement as a human right. <laughs> it is a violation of human right to, you know, violate copyright. And I'm like, okay, what the fuck? That sounds sussy as fuck. So, I it look into the... Stuff out the butt. So, I look into the organization real quick. I, I Google searched them. First thing I see is on Wikipedia. Uh, they were founded by the Church of Scientology. 
So reading, baby. Mm-hmm. Not reading, baby. And I looked up other sources too. No, it, they are in fact a Scientology front org. So yeah, a, a cult that's basically using an org to quote unquote teach about human rights there. Um, but going back to this, 2009, this shady ass org founded by Rainier and the Bronfmans. Uh, they sponsor a visit to New York by the Dalai Lama. The visit was initially canceled by the Dalai Lama owing to negative press about Nexium, but was rescheduled. And then the Dalai Lama spoke at Albany Pal- Al- the, uh, Albany's Palace Theater in May of tw- 2009. In 2017, uh, Lama Tenzin Donden, the self-styled personal emissary for peace for the Dalai Lama, who arranged the appearance, was suspended from his position amid corruption charges. The investigations also revealed a personal relationship between Dondon and Sarah Bronfman, which began in 2009. Lots of fun shit happened in 2009, didn't it? So, at I'm this... Just, even this this whole, like, corrupt religion, this guy's supposed to be a Lama, man, which is a title for a teacher of the Dharma in Tibetan Buddhism. And like this, oh man. So numerous like publications like Slate, um, Times Union, New York Times describe Nexium around this year as a uh, pyramid scheme, a sex trafficking operation, and a cult. Um, in 2010, a Times Union article. Um, a Times Union article, former Nexium coaches characterize students as prey for Rainier's sexual or gambling-related proclivities. Gambling. Actually, that seems to fit the profile of a sociopath. Oh, yeah. Yeah, lack of inhibitions. So, uh, Kristen Keefe, a longtime partner of Rainier and a mother of one of his children, left the group in 2014 and called Rainier dangerous saying all the mm. worst things you know about Nexium are true. Um, I feel sorry for his children, man. I hope that they are doing well and because, God, I can't imagine having a dad like this. That'd be horrible, man. Yeah, no shit. I'd, go, I'd actually visit him just so I could whip his ass in prison. You know what I'm saying? Because right now he's in prison. I'd go there and I'd bring a shank or something. Hey, what's up, pops? Man, I'd shank his motherfucker. Man, motherfucker. <laughs> And Minecraft. Oh, um, hey, hell nah, nah. He ain't no political figure. We can say it. This guy deserves to be buried in the fucking cemetery, man. Martin F Angus. all that stuff. <laughs> He's a POS. POS. So, 2014, Rainier founds another organization. It's a Nexium-affiliated news organization called the Knife of Aristotle, later known as the Knife and the knife media. The fuck Boy. is it? The fuck is this about? Was a kick in the teeth. What is this the like? Knife. What is this dark brotherhood bullshit? The knife? The knife <laughs> media? It's probably. Is this? This is probably saying like I'm gonna kill you if you uh, go against me. Well, the knife of Aristotle was subsequently described as a fake news website and a cult. Well, no shit, Sherlock. The organization also reportedly hired journalists in an attempt to gain media support and solicit new members to Nexium, as well as fabricating staff members. Just making people the fuck up, apparently. 
Uh, one of these articles, let's see. Elon Musk bashed media with article from the cult accused of sex trafficking. Oh, even if, even Elon Musk somehow has more like moral integrity than this fucking shit. So then, starting with reports by somebody named Frank Parlato in June of 2017, and bolstered by a 2017 news article in the New York Times, details begin to emerge about Dominus Obsequius Sororium, which shortened DOS. So, oh, what, okay. so what the fuck is Dominus Obsequius Sororium? Well, apparently it's a secret sisterhood that started in 2015 within Nexium in which female members were allegedly called slaves. Uh, again, content warning for some pretty brutal shit here. So maybe yeah. if you're not cool with that, give it like maybe 10 seconds here. Branded with the initials of Rainier and Mac, subjected to corporal punishment from their masters and required to provide nude photos or potentially damaging information about themselves as collateral. Law enforcement representatives have alleged that DOS members were forced into sexual slavery. This is when it gets like peak fucking bad here. Sarah Edmondson, a Canadian actress who had been an ESP participant since 2005, ESP, oh, executive success programs, okay. Uh, since 2005, said that she left Nexium after Mac inducted her into DOS the previous March at her Albany home. Edmondson alleged that participants were blindfolded. Uh, okay, another trigger warning here. Give it like another 10 seconds if you're not down for this shit. Uh, she alleged that participants were blindfolded naked, held down by Mac and three other women, and were branded by Nexium-affiliated doctor Daniel Roberts using a cauterizing pen. Appearing on an A&E television program about cults, Edmondson provided additional context for the use of collateral, the collateral concept, saying that it was used in, oh god, innocuous forms from the earliest, outermost stages of Nexium in order to acclimate victims. For example, uh, collateralizing small amounts of money that one might forfeit if one, not, if one did not go to the gym one day. The Times later reported that hundreds of members left Nexium after Edmondson went public about her experience. On December 15, 2017, the ABC News magazine 2020 aired an expose including interviews with many former Nexium adherents, including Edmondson and Catherine Oxenberg, who alleged that her daughter, India Oxenberg, was in danger due to the group. So the Oxenbergs, by the way, are, you know, Catherine Oxenberg is a, you know, American actress, and uh, her daughter, India, is a film producer, writer, and an actress, too. Also, fun fact, She's a granddaughter of Princess Elizabeth of Yugoslavia. Interesting. I think I remember that, yeah. Several former members reported financial and sexual predation by Nexium leaders. Edmondson further appeared in Escaping Nexium during the first season of the CBC podcast Uncover. Hmm. Seven socially prominent Mexicans, including Emilio Salinas Ocelli or Ocelli, I don't know how to pronounce that last name. I'm going to say Ocelli. 
son of former president of Mexico, Carlos Salinas de Gortari. The fuck? And Ana Cristina oh. Fox. She's <laughs> both there. So, well, hold on here. Ana Cristina Fox, daughter of the former president Vicente Fox of Mexico. Yeah. Rosa Laura Junco. Rosa Laura Junco. Loretta Garza Davila. Or Davila. Davila. Sorry. Loretta Garza. I'm, I'm getting tired. I've been talking most of the time. <laughs> How about you read this shit? I'm tired. <laughs> so I guess he's uh, recruiting internationally too, man. Several yeah. socially prominent Mex Mexicanos. Mexicanos, Mexicanas. So, man. Ouch. So, yeah, if you if you go down to... Are you on the main page there? Oh, yeah, I'm here, man. Yeah, just scroll down to criminal prosecutions and evictions. All oh. right, so March 2018, this P.O.S. Renier, 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 I don't care what his name is. I'm going to call him P.O.S. Paz. Paz was arrested and indicted on charges relating to D.O.S. What the hell is this, man? Including sex trafficking, sex trafficking... Conspiracy and conspiracy to commit forced labor. So, damn, man. He was arrested in Mexico and held in custody in New York after appearing in federal court in Fort Worth, Texas. So, this indictment, right? It's alleging that at least it's alleged that at least one woman was coerced into sex with uh, P.O.S. Renier, who forced DOS members to undergo the branding ritual alleged by Edmondson and others. So this branding ritual, I've seen a, there's a picture here on this web, uh, on this page of what it looks like. Have you seen this? What is it from? Hold on, show me it. It's in the Keith Renier article. Let me go down, dude. And for those of you out there. Oh God. Um, Holy shit, that's fucking gross. Yeah, it's gross, man. And I don't even know what to describe this as. It kind of looks like a, a like a Freemason type thing, but like you know what I'm saying? Kind of looks like that. It looks like yeah, it looks like a signature actually, like a emblem. Oh yeah, shit, no, no, no. Turn that mug sideways, and you it's K it. and R. Yeah, you can see it. You can see the K and R. This motherfucker, he's treating these women like cattle, man. Mm -hmm. Branding them and stuff. Yeah, pretty fucking gross. Man, this is some... Yo! Yo, man, this guy... Why is this guy not get the death penalty, man? <laughs> well, you know... His life sentence is close enough, I think, if you... Look he's enough. wasting resources, man. He's, he's wasting resources. I think it actually costs more to technically execute someone and keep them in prison for the rest of their lives. How can it cost more when all you need is a gun and then you blow the freaking head off and then you throw them in a pit? How is that expensive? Because we don't live in a country that lets you you, you do that unless you're a cop. Um, oh. Yeah. Ouch. But anyway. I'm just saying, man. So, yeah. They're getting fucking... Uh so if you if y'all notice I'm real hot with this episode, like angry, like mad, like rage, because I hate cults. I hate destructive cults. 
I don't like them. I don't like cult leaders. I hate cult leaders. They're up there with serial killers and rapists to me. I hate them. I hate them. Did I mention that? I hate them. I loathe them. I despise them. Oof. So this is triggering for me because I'm going to... Ooh, man. Oof. Martin wants to box. So I want to do more than box, son. <laughs> so I will, I will continue reading now. Oh, you good? What's your... I'm good. So, right. April 20th, 2018, Allison Mack was arrested and indicted on similar charges to Reniers. According to prosecutors, after she recruited women into first Nexium and then DOS, Mark Mack, <laughs> I want to say Mark, but her name's, last name's Mack, Mack coerced them into engaging in sexual activity with Reniers and performing menial tasks, for which Reniers allegedly paid her. Mac was further alleged to be Nexium's second-in-command after Renier. That's interesting. I figured Salzman would be. Hmm. So, oh, yeah, what happened to her? Hmm. Oh, she... You'll see. On April mm. 24th, Mac was released on $5 million bond pending... Who the fuck paid this bond? Who has fine $5 million? Do you have to have 10% of $5 million? Jesus, I don't know. Damn. And she was held under house arrest for parents in California. On May 4th, Renier pleaded not guilty. What a surprise. So Nancy Salzman home was raided shortly after Renier's arrest. And prosecutors stated during his arraignment that further arrests and a superseding indictment for Renier and Mac should be expected. In late May, authorities moved to see two Annexium-owned properties near Albany. So they're seizing that. Okay, taking it over. In April 2018, the New York Post reported that Nexium had moved to Brooklyn, New York, and was being held, being led, not, what the fuck, being led by Claire Bronfman. On June 12, 2018, the Times Union reported that Nexium suspended its operations due to extraordinary circumstances facing the company. Rothman was arrested on July 24th and charged with racketeering. She was later released to house arrest after signing a hundred million... <laughs> what the fuck? Yo, money is wasted on the rich, man. You know man. how to say youth is wasted on the young? Dude, it's like the whole bond system so fucked. Like, if you're rich, a bond is fucking nothing. But if you're Hell poor, yeah. you're, you stay in fucking jail. You get a get-out-of-jail-free card with a bond for the time being. Yeah. She was also arrested and charged with the same crime where Nexium President Nancy Salzman, her daughter, Lauren Salzman, and another employee, another Nexium employee, Kathy Russell. So these motherfuckers are being arrested one after Yo, another. Yo, hold on. Are there any, like, dudes in this organization besides KR? I don't the know. P.O.S. Renier? There's, you know what I'm saying? If there's dudes in this organization, they're probably down in, like, the lower ranks, right? This was a harem, man. This was a harem. Right. So, March 13, 2019, Nancy Salzman pleads guilty to a charge of racketeering criminal conspiracy. Also, March 2019, Lauren Salzman pleads guilty to racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. April 8, 2019, Mac, Allison Mac, pleaded guilty to racketeering. April 19, 2019, Bronfman pleaded guilty to all charges 
of harboring an alien and identify. I know he was an okay. alien. Uh, see, I was about to make a joke too. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they just break into her house and they're like, "What the fuck?" There's like a big, there's a fucking green ass Martian in like a tube full of jelly. That's like, how you can make women see blue light. Yeah, it's like, what the fuck you doing with an alien in there, girl? So, <laughs> and identity fraud apparently too. And Kathy Russell, the bookkeeper, also pleads guilty to visa fraud. Uh, was Kathy Russell the alien? <laughs> was she the Martian? Yeah. Yeah. Who was the quote-unquote illegal immigrant? Uh, good question. So Rainier's federal trial began on May 7, 2019. And it was June 19, 2019. He was convicted Damn. of racketeering and sex trafficking. Let's take a look at, you know, the sentences. Month. And they, that took a month. That's crazy. That, that was quick trial, man. Oh, yeah. But look at this sentence. Look at this man. 120 years in prison. Shit. Damn, they're going to have to, like, trap his soul into, like, a gem or something and have him, you know, wait out those years, essentially. So all these motherfuckers end up uh, serving different, like, stints in prison. Keith Renier gets 120 fucking years in prison. Good. Under the fucking prison. Hell yeah, man. So what happens to Nexium after all these motherfuckers get busted? So, January 2020. Federal lawsuit was filed in New York accusing Renier and 14 associates, including Nancy Salzman, Claire Bronfman, Sarah Bronfman, Lauren Salzman, Allison Mack, Kathy Russell, Karen Unterer, oh look, there's a guy, Brandon Porter, from <laughs> the the one dude, <laughs> Brandon Porter, Danielle Roberts, and Nikki Klein of conducting illegal psychological experiments on members of a company and abusing them physically, emotionally, and financially. September 30th, 2020, Judge Nicholas G. Garofis <laughs> of the United States District Court. For the Eastern District of New York, sentenced Brothman to six years and nine month, months in federal prison. Her attorney promised to appeal, calling the sentence an abomination. Bitch, shut up. And the pot calling the kettle black. Man, you the motherfucking abomination represent somebody like her. Hell, you deserve to be under the fucking jail. You man. Beginning in July 2020, at least six Nexium loyalists were org organizing dance protests outside the detention what? center which houses Rainier what the fuck are you what do you sounds think like some Charles you remember the Charles Manson stuff yeah yeah it is exactly like that shit hell yeah operating under the name we are as you dancers included actor Nikki Klein and branding doctor Danielle Ro why is Danielle Roberts not in fucking prison well and oh my god man while incarcerated, Renier maintained his leadership role over Nexium, regularly communicating with his followers by phone. Renier instructed his followers to solicit the, oh my god, the assistance of Alan Dershowitz. Oh god. The attorney who successfully oh. negotiated a non-prosecution agreement of the late Jeffrey Epstein. Why is Alan Dershowitz not under the fucking jail? Thank you. All the people he's... Gosh. Like, how many skeletons does he have in his closet? You know what I'm saying? There is, like, no hell 
low enough for Alan Dershowitz to burn in forever. Mr. Brother, he gonna have skeletons coming out of his closet, chasing him around the room. Hopefully, like Bobby Womack said. Hopefully for all eternity, shit. Hell yeah, man. Jesus Christ. Renier gave false names of the people he was allegedly calling to prison, prison officials, and call recipients employed burner phones in an attempt to avoid detection. In one instance, Renier instructed a follower to, quote, get scrutiny on the judge in his case, explaining that the judge needs to know he's being watched. What, oh, wow. why, why are you letting yeah. this man have phones? Don't yeah. let him have phones. Solitary, the rest of his natural life, man. I'm also kind of switching over to his article here, right? So, a number of Rainier's alleged lovers suffered untimely deaths. Gina mm. Hutchinson was found dead of a gunshot wound to her head. Christian Snyder disappeared and was last seen at a Nexium event. Live-in girlfriends, Barbara Jessica and Pam Caffritz, Pam Caffritz, both died from what was diagnosed as cancer at the time, but is allegedly had to have actually been subtle poisoning. Renier's partner, Kristen Keefe, survived cervical cancer. Uh, what does that have to do? That blue lights, man. Them blue lights ain't healthy for them women. No. In 2009, Renier was filmed claiming, I've killed people because of my beliefs. I've had people, oh, I've had people killed because of my beliefs. Excuse me. Don't want to misquote this guy. In 2019, Investigation Discovery aired a documentary titled The Lost Women of Nexium, speculating that Renier committed homicide. According to that program, a woman who lived with Renier and developed bladder cancer submitted a hair sample that reportedly revealed the evidence of dangerous levels of bismuth and barium. So, this guy has possibly, probably, I will say, pretty comfortable saying probably murdered fucking people. Um, mm. Not a big surprise, actually. So, apparently, also, there's a civil lawsuit that was filed against him in 2020, where Renier and other, and other Nexium individuals were named as defendants in a civil lawsuit filed in federal court by 80 former Nexium members. The lawsuit details allegations of fraud and abuse and charges the Nexium organization with being a pyramid scheme. Wow, no shit. Exploitation of its recruits, conducting Captain obvious. Yeah, conducting illegal human experiments and making it physically and psychologically difficult, and in some cases impossible to leave the coercive community. So that's what Nexium is or was. I'm looking at a timeline right now, courtesy of the New York Times, and it's like a timeline of events. And it kind of covers a lot of, you know, what we've already talked about. But I'm trying to kind of find, okay, what now? It's 2022. What's going on here? Hell yeah, what's going on, bro? Uh, not really finding a whole lot, actually, about the most current thing on that article. Uh, the most thing, the most, let's see, the most timely thing I found right now is yeah. an article posted today, actually, from 9 a.m. And it's the News 10 article I shared with you. It looks like a local Albany ABC one. And oh, okay. 
The title of this article, Nexium President Gets Start of Prison Sentence Delayed. And this is Nancy Salzman. Uh, Brooklyn, New York. Nancy Salzman, president and co-founder of the Capital Region-based sex cult Nexium, has had the start of her prison sentence delayed by one month. Salzman was sentenced to three and a half years in prison for her role in the... Three and a half years? Are you fucking absolutely serious? Three and a fucking half mm. years? Yeah, none of these people should... Mm. Although I do think some of these people are victims as well, though, man. But still, yeah. Dude, the they victim... Be there is such a thing as the victim-perpetrator model. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Salzman requested the, the postponement due to a COVID-19 outbreak at the prison. She is scheduled to surrender and... Due to her mother's rapidly deteriorating condition, a U.S. District Court judge approved the request. The request cites recent news about a COVID outbreak at the prison. Outbreak. God damn it, my voice is going. The document asks for a delay of the start of the prison term for Salzman's personal safety. As for her mother, the request, the request states that Salzman does not trust the facility she is at and she has no other family member to go with her to her medical appointments. Salzman was supposed to report to the prison on January 19th. Her sentence is now scheduled to start on February 21st. The organization drew national attention for operating as a sex cult that engaged in sex trafficking, forced labor, and racketeering. So, as it stands right now, she has yet to start her prison sentence, but will be doing so shortly. Not soon enough. February 21st. Mm. Not soon enough. Definitely not fucking long enough either. And uh, Keith Renier to this day is still in the prison. Under the prison. They should make him like... Yo, my brother one time told me... A, my brother one time told me a story about when he was in prison. He oh, yeah. said... He said that they... Uh, the people in the prison used to put this uh, child molester in a laundry bag every day and hang him up in a laundry bag on the door. And he said that every day, people, anybody who would go by there punched him, punched the child molester who was in the laundry. And they would just punch him and punch him. And they would walk by and just punch him or kick him. You know, they should do something like this every day to keep uh, this Keith dude, man. Mm -hmm. Just put him in a laundry, like uh, a laundry, you know, you some some bag you put your clothes in, hanging on the door, put Keith inside of it, and all day, man, just anybody who walks by, punch it, whether it be a guard with one of them baton sticks, boom, as they walk by, or whether it be some dude going to the bathroom, walking by, boom, boom, man, that's what they should do, man, boom, boom, bam, bam, boom, woo, man, that's... I want to see some street justice on this fool. Hopefully one day, but... You bringing out the ghetto in me with this episode, man. People are like, <laughs> who is this guy over here? <laughs> I'm still me, but man, I've been fired up. And well, I'm a bad man when I'm fired up. Well, the I'll say this. The person who fucking recommended me this... Is the person... And that person who will no doubt be listening to this knows who they are. <laughs> Look at what you've look at what you've done to my Martin. Now he's violent and ghetto and wants to kill people. 
Hey, I, ain't, I don't kill anybody. I ain't going to prison for nothing, nobody. <laughs> I'm just saying, put him in a basket or a laundry, whatever, laundry basket or laundry. I can't even say, you know, one of them bags you put in laundry, right? And then just put him up against the wall in that little bag. Mm-hmm. I wonder what no the matter, most though, man. Hey, I'm not going 25 to life for no man. I know. No. <laughs> no. I wonder what the latest update is on that piece of shit anyway. Well, hopefully he's getting some uh some justice done to him in that prison, you know, some street justice. An ass kicking every single day wouldn't be enough. Let's see. Uh Keith Renier, leader of Nexium, ordered to pay 3.4 million dollars to victims. Uh, let's see. Federal prosecutors are using a law intended for the mob in unexpected cases. What? Oh, okay. I can see this. They probably used some legislation to convict them for racketeering, which, I mean, the mafia and all that shit. Oh, yeah, man. Um, Rico. Yeah, it's Rico. Yeah, this one's about Rico. Um, it just doesn't really talk about updates about Keith Renier. So he's in prison, and may he be in prison until the end of time. And Amen. sometime and sometime after. In the words of Justin Timberlake, to until the end of time. <laughs> but yeah, that's the story of Nexium. Any thoughts, Martin? You well, my it? thoughts are compassion right now for the victims, you know, those lost women of Nexium. Because here, here's the thing about me, man. I'm a knight. And as a knight, one thing I really hate so much is when I see women get abused and offended. That it really offends me as a knight. <laughs> very chivalric. Very just. Very based. I want to. I'm trying to find a prison photo of him. I want to see his prison mug. Does he have one? Nah, it's just that one where they have him in processing and he's staring dead at the camera and it looks like really grainy and shit. Oh well. Well, unfortunately, even though. Most of us will not get the chance to punch Keith Renier in the mouth repeatedly. There is one thing we can do. Several things we can do, actually. One of those things happens to be following us at Ministry Modus on Twitter. Not only following us at Ministry Modus on Twitter, you can also find Ministry Modus on YouTube as well. Just Ministry Modus, where Martin has been very, very, very hard at work getting clips updated from our shows for your viewing and listening pleasure. So if you'd like to follow us for updates, hot takes, or to get in contact with us, you can reach out to us at Ministry Modus on Twitter, or you can reach out to us via email at martincornbread at gmail.com. All one word, martinandcornbread at gmail.com. So, with all that said, Martin, do you have a closing rhyme to conclude our very happy episode on? 
I got uh, I got no rhymes, I have no time because man, my blood is on fire. So what I'm gonna need to do now is <laughs> from the herpes. <laughs> hey, my wife. <laughs> that was my wife. Hello, wife. <laughs> oh my God, Jesus Christ! He locked me in the garage again like yesterday. <laughs> Well, thank you for tuning in, everyone. We're gonna have us some butt sex, and it's gonna be great. So no rhymes today? <laughs> no, I ain't got no rhymes today. Okay. <laughs> ain't I've got been suitably chasing. Got no rhymes today. <laughs> got no time to play. <laughs> I got no time to play. Gotta go away. Bye bye. <laughs> today. Toodles.